Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock, or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Mike Reed had all the right stuff to become a professional athlete, but when that didn't work out, he made the best of it in a big way. The name of his book, Coach Caddy Ref. Hello. Hello. Hi, Mike. Yes. How you doing? Good, thanks. This is Alice. I'm Hi. calling for your interview, and I looked at the number. I said, oh, you're in Portland. Yep. Is it raining? Absolutely. <laughs> It's, does it ever not rain in Portland? When doesn't it not rain? Well, it snowed a couple days ago, so it's kind of baseball oh. weather right now. Jeez. It's been uh, raining the last couple. It was actually nice for a couple days. Now it's back to being rain again. So you're probably here to hit the roof of my place. It was just pounding a few minutes ago. Wow. Jeez, it's been so crazy. I'm out on the East Coast. Nothing. We had nothing. No snow. It's been very weird. Uh, very I used weird. to live back there, so I know how it goes. Yeah. Wow, Mike, you've had some life here. Um, I can see why you wrote a book. Thank you. Yeah, you, you, you coached, you played high school, college, baseball, uh, golf, caddied on LPGA tours, officiated in the World Basketball League, NBA. I mean, you were just, how, how did this all start? Were you just born a gifted athlete? I was okay in baseball and I screwed my knee up. So I kind of knew in college I wasn't going to be able to play professional. So I studied into the coaching and that's what I got into right after I got out. I, I was a teacher. I got a head coaching job when I was 23. What college did you go to? I went to Lewis and Clark in Portland. Did you get a scholarship? Yes. Were you like the... Uh, yeah. Okay, so you were the, the high school athlete, yes. right? That was that had to be devastating. Absolutely. And it's, you know, you decide what you want to do in life. So I went into coaching. And then when I got into college, my college baseball coach was a basketball referee. He got me started on that. And I got to be pretty good at it. And I thought, oh, I want to go be a professional referee. And I got hit in the head my third year teaching and decided I don't want to coach anymore. So I was with the referee aspect, and then it kind of blossomed from there. How'd you get hit in the head? Uh, batting practice. Oh. We were playing a live scrimmage, and I took one kid hit me, and I was out, Got to, woke up at the uh, hospital, and lost a little bit of memory, and just decided I didn't want to be teaching five years from then. Looking back now, I probably wish I would have, but you know, the rest of life would have happened, so... <laughs> did you think that was a sign, maybe, Mike? Uh -huh. It did. <laughs> Do something else. So you ended up refing. Correct. Everything. Like, I coached at Lewis and Clark for a couple of years, and then the, the World Basketball League came along, and I'd been to a couple of NBA camps. So I went up to a tryout camp in Vancouver, and the guy that was the head of the referees of the World Basketball League was the old NBA referee supervisor, and I got hired up there, and... First year, I worked a lot of games. It's mostly in Vancouver, and then I was one of the first ones that got to travel. They flew me to Calgary a few times, and then the second year, I flew all over the place. Were you basically a referee? Were yes. you in Canada and the U.S.? Yes. So it, it's my understanding. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't there some? Isn't there like a union? I mean, to become a ref, it's not easy to become a ref. It's not. It's a lot harder now than it used to be because it's 
the referees now in the NBA, they've got a lot more in there because they have them on reduced schedules and they got three men. So there's more guys that are available, but you know, it's a profession NBA. That's their job. They do that full time. The guys in college, it's hard to get into college as well because it pays a lot of money and it's very competitive. And a lot of it's who, you know, and you know, it's, it'd be tough for a young guy coming through right now trying to get in. I know several guys that are trying to get in there and I just wish them the best they can because I know the commitment involvement involved to getting where they're trying to get to. So it's tough. Well, you never, you're never home, right? During the seasons. And that's the one thing I tell them too. If you're married, uh, not a good idea because every time I was gone, I'd get a phone call. I'd be on the East coast and something had happened at home and there's not much I can do about it. Sitting in a motel room in Florida. Not ideal for a married man. It can work because a lot of them are married, but ideally it's a single person's job. How did you end up getting in? You said, did you know people? I mean, how was it for you getting in? I went to an NBA camp in Florida, and then I went to Hugh Holmes as an NBA ref. He had one in L.A., and I got noticed out of those and got referred to Norm Drucker, who was the supervisor. I went up to the tryout camp and got hired from that. And then I worked the NBA Summer League two or three years and I worked the preseason stuff with Portland and Seattle. They had their camps. I'd go in and work those and I play games and I actually got to work uh, Portland against Utah in a summer league game that was played at Civic Stadium in Portland. I think they had 24, 25,000 people there. So that was, that was kind of a big thrill. And I'm sure, you know, the fans always agreed with your calls, didn't they? The one thing you'd be guaranteed about basketball is half are going to be happy and half are going to be unhappy. And for the most part, they're all going to be pissed off at you. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, man, you guys probably need security. You do. You know, the way people scream at refs, right? You do. And they had the big game in that Creighton and San Diego State game. Yes. I made a call with a second left. And yes. you know, again, half are going to agree, half are going to disagree. And I felt bad for the guy because I thought it was the right call. But you know, I get opinions from everybody and everybody's going to disagree on it. But... You know, that's why they get paid the amount of money they do. Well, how do you feel about, you know, actually referees' jobs being marginalized by the replays and the camera angles? And It's definitely changed from what it used to be because we didn't have review back then. And I think one time in the whole history of something, I looked at a tape. We just happened to have access to tape in our locker room at halftime. And I went and took a look at some call and I had to reverse it because it was the wrong one. Hmm. But now these guys, everything's reviewed and... It just it slowed down the game, and again, if you're going to have humans involved in it, there's going to be some mistakes, and that's part of the game. You go back in the history of baseball and all the other sports, and you can see bad calls that resulted in one team winning and another losing. And you know, get back to that call from the other night. They say let that call go. Well, if he lets that call go, you're actually rewarding the guy who didn't play defense, and you're letting the team who should have been beat or potentially been beat go into overtime and have the potential winning. So it's it's a two-edged sword, and I know the reason why they're doing it is they want to get every call right, but you get every call right, you're looking at three-hour games, and then you're into baseball where you put a pitch clock on a pitcher, and now you're really messing up the whole the whole reason you go to baseball games is to sit there and eat food and watch a game and have a good time. Well, I would think it messes up the rhythm, too. Like, yep. And, you know, the guys have to wait around for the commercials. Yep. And the whole rhythm of the game is thrown off. Absolutely. They have TV timeouts that they have to take. And NBA yeah. used to be at 659 and 259. I don't know what the college rule is on timeouts, but there are TV timeouts 
put into the regular five timeouts that they get during the game. So in your book, do you highlight, um, I'm sure there were experiences you had that you share, you know, is, is there a standout one that you can share with us? It's funny stories that have accumulated over the years, and there's so many of them. When I sat down and started writing them, I started remembering all the good stuff that was going on, and they just come fast and furious, and there's so much Excuse me, there's a few that I haven't uh, written down that I remember after the fact because I got with my brother and he reminded me of a few of them. But most of the professional ones happened during the course of the game and just try to put those in a print and make people laugh because too many times you don't see the funny side of sports other than the bloopers on TV. You don't hear about the stuff that goes on behind the scenes and that's kind of what I tried to do in this. Remember Len Berman spanning the globe? Yes. Uh, those sports bloopers <laughs> That's who I work with now. <laughs> I used to love those bloopers. But come on, give me a standout story. Give me one that made you laugh or surprised you. Or give me an example of what we're going to find in your book. Well, there was one, and there's several, but this one's kind of a funny one from the LPGA Tour. I used to work for Laurel Keene, and she was from Cleveland, one of the nicest people I ever want to meet. And I worked for her for a year and a half she'd never gotten mad i mean never got upset and we were playing in atlantic city and we had three holes to go and caddies always know what the cut line is out on tour you know what you have to get to get to the weekend and that's what you're paid so we were right on the cut line on 16 and she made a really bad bogey which put us one under and i think she knew so she was really upset when we got to the next hole and the 17th hole we were playing on, it was downwind, which means the ball's going to carry further. It was hard, so it's going to bounce and roll. And she wanted to hit a driver, and I told her it wasn't really the right club, and she went off on me. And she'd never sworn at me before, and she let me have it for about two minutes. And finally, she took the club out. She hit the one she wanted. She blocked it right. It went into a bunker. And she let me have it the whole way up the hole about never talking to her again not influence what she's saying. And I knew she was just mad from the bogey before. So I let her go. So we got up to the hole. I gave her the yardage. She let me have it again. I said, Laurel, you need to focus. So she gave it to me again. And finally she goes, what do you got? And I gave her the yardage. So she took the club out. She hit it about six inches from the hole. Oh. So, so she walks off and there was a marshal there. He goes, let me rake the bunker. And I said, Nope, I need to let her cool off a little bit before I get up there. So I raked it and walked up to bed, and I got up to the green, and she's got a big smile on her face. And she goes, great call, and I dropped the profanity back on her, and she started cracking up laughing. And needless <laughs> to say, she made the, made the putt, and we made the cut and went on playing the weekend. It's still, you know, I didn't put any of the profanity in the book because I want everybody to read it. And it was, it was pretty bad there for a couple seconds. But again, <laughs> she was going off on herself through me. Right. And I knew that she was, it wasn't personal. And so many times out on tour, people take personal what they're saying to you and they're not. And I'd rather have a player give it to me than themselves because we're trying to make money. Right. Right. Now this is when you were a caddy. Yes. Now, how did you become, you're a ref, you're a caddy, you're a teacher. What, what, how did that, how did you become a caddy? How long did you do that? I did that for five years. We were living in New York and there was jobs. I needed to go find some place to work. And I always played golf and I was, I was decent at it. So there was a country club opening on Long Island. So I applied for it. It was a cart man. So all I did was take the carts up to the first tee. I'd bring them back afterwards, clean them off, bring them back again. It was a great job. Got to play golf for free. Well, they had these golf outings every Monday where they 
groups would come in, they rent the course, and each team, each group has a caddy with them. Well, they didn't have enough one day, so they said, why don't you go out and caddy with these guys? So great. So went out and did it, had a lot of fun, did a great job, started doing those caddy events, and pretty soon uh, one of the pros at the club says, I'm working a tournament, can you come and caddy for me? So I did, and actually got to be pretty good at it, and we moved to Los Angeles, and I got on at Riviera, so I caddied there for about a year. And then we moved back to D.C., and I got on a congressional, and I was only there for a couple months. And the LPGA tournament had a event down at Myrtle Beach, so I drove down there, and I sat in the clubhouse, and that's where I met up with Laurel. And we worked the first tournament. We missed the cut. She had somebody for the next week, so I worked for Kim Williams from Atlanta, and then the third week we worked with Laurel in Nashville, and we lost in a playoff, five-hole playoff. So... You know, we hit it off right away. I and mean, it's a lot of those things. You see a lot of those caddies out there are a long time on the bag, and some of them are very short-term because you're with the people you work for a lot of time during the day. Well, yeah, and I would think, as you just noted, that you have to be in tune with them, and you have to know when they're screaming at you and they're, you know, treating you like dirt that it's just in the moment. Absolutely. You know? And some of them are easy to work for. Some of them are hard to work for. Some of them you don't do as much as you do other ones. It's everybody's different. I mean, it's the PGA, the first event I had, I worked for Rick Booker, and we played a pro-am, and I did one hole with the yardage because usually the player and the caddy both carry yardage books, and they do check them to make sure. And I did the yardage for two holes. He goes, I don't need my book. He put it in the bag. And he says, you're on. So, okay, now all the pressure's on me. And then our first round, we played in San Diego at uh, Torrey Pines. And the first hole, he hands me a scorecard. And I said, when do you want the card? Because the players always keep the card. He goes, oh, no, you're keeping the score. <laughs> and I'd been out on the women's tour for three years, and no one out there has ever seen a caddy keep score there. It's always the players because that's their paycheck. If I screw up, we're not getting paid. Right, right. So he handed that to me. So that was, it was fun, but you know, it's, it's work. Right. Oh no, I, for sure. What, what, just curious, um, what do you think of the LIV golf series? I'm not a fan. I, (laughs) that's, that's probably as far as I'll go on it. I'm not a fan of it. I don't, don't like the concept. I don't like what's doing the golf. I'm a PGA guy, LPGA, and I'm old school that way. What's it, how is it different? I mean, I had to cover, Oh, I had to go out to Trump's golf course out in uh, Jersey near Bedminster. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you, I'm sure you're familiar with it. And yep. it was really interesting. The, you know, people that were going out there for this LAV golf tournament. And uh, some people are, you know, right on board. You know, it's just golf. Others are just not happy at all. But do, you, do you think it'll last? I don't because I think it's a circus they're playing guaranteed money. They're only playing a certain amount of events. They got a limited number of players in the fields. And they kept saying they took the best players in the PGA. Well, no, they didn't. And the nice thing about golf is there'll never be a strike. Because if you want to strike, go ahead. There's plenty of guys out here that can come in and play and fill your shoes. And there's guys on that Corn Ferry Tour that are so good. And all they do is need a little opening to get in there. And they're going to make money. Because these guys all came through the same thing. Well, what did you what did you think about the guys who decided to go? Well, you can understand why they're doing it because it's money. They're guaranteed all these millions of dollars and your family's set for the rest of your life. So as far as that goes, if I was offered thirty million dollars to go over there, it'd be a hard time saying no to that. Okay. 
but again, it's each guy has to decide what's important for them. And if their family does that, well, they have to accept the repercussions back on the PGA tour that you can't play there anymore. So it's, it's a decision you make, you know, we have decisions to make and that's one of them you do. And well, you can't come back. What would you say, you know, yeah, is the, why did, why did you write this book? What, what's your takeaway? What, what do you want people to get from this book? I mean, you want everybody to read this book, sports fans, kids, People like to laugh and want to see the brighter side and funnier side of life because when I started writing this, I had cancer and didn't know if I was going to make it or not. So I started putting some of my old stories on Facebook and everybody was saying, you need to really put these in the book because they, they said, you got a lot more. Of them. So I said, okay. So I started writing and it was really therapy for me going through chemo at the time and the cancer and all that. And eventually it, it became what it was. And like I said earlier, there's stuff I forgot that it's not in there that maybe I'll go back for round two later on if I can remember more stuff to put it into print. But there are more stories, and it's been a ride. So cancer is is what inspired you to write this book. Correct. And you're good now? You all right? Don't know. It. Uh, I'd been through six chemos, and then COVID came along, and I scheduled for three more. I, he told me it was fine, but he wanted three more chemos, so I never got him. And it's to a point now where, you know, life is what it is. I'm not going to go through that stuff again because that's, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but that's what I tried to yeah. make the, the whole thing entertaining because cancer's not funny, but I tried to make it funny so some people can see you, you don't lose your sense of humor over something, period. Do you talk about your cancer in your book? Yes. Yep. What, what kind of cancer it is it? bladder cancer. And I actually covered the whole, that's how I started the book out was what I went through with the cancer and the whole treatment and how they found it and everything in there. And it's, it's pretty entertaining. I made it a lot funnier than it actually was. The, the, them finding out you had bladder cancer was funny. Is that what ended your career? No. Or were you already done? I was already, I was teaching at a, a private school down there and I didn't miss any practices or any events during the cancer. I went to everything because I just, I had to stay busy. I couldn't sit around and feel sorry for myself. Right. And then. Where were you, the, where's down there? San Diego. Yep. And then the day that I went to the doctor and they did the, the exam and he said, I was clean. I got home and an hour later I had a call from the Padres that I was hired. I'd interviewed to be on the grounds crew there. So I got hired to work with them. That's a miracle. Yeah. So it's kind of a. Full circle being a baseball coach, I always say they put old baseball coaches out the pasture working on the ground. <laughs> so when you got the bladder cancer, you, you continued working through the whole thing. Yes. And you were able to remember these stories and and kind of it, it brought you comfort to, to actually write about them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's therapeutic. Good for you, Mike. Good for you. I, ha I have a really good friend who um, is going through that. He's got to take a chemo pill every day for the rest of his life. Uh, feel sorry for him, but got to stay positive. Yeah, and he does somehow. He does, and I'm amazed by you. Because you got to remember, life is better than the alternative. Yeah. I enjoy every day, and that's what I put in the book. I enjoy living and just have to have a good time. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really enjoyed this. Well, thank you. The name of our next book is Letters from Heaven, Divine Inspiration. And when you hear Gary Estrada's story of how he found his calling, you will completely understand both divine and inspiration. It, it really is a culmination of events because it's five letters. Each letter has to deal with a real life situation. So uh, and some of these letters go back 30 years. 
um, uh, the first letter, uh, which was where I got my title, Letters from Heaven, a letter from heaven, actually, uh, was my friend Keith, who uh, died a very painful death. Uh, he died of cancer. Uh, the cancer ate him to the bone. And his wife at the funeral said, I wish Keith would have left me a letter. And that's what the inspiration was right there. I thought, wow, what would Keith say to her? Assuming he's in heaven, because um, they prayed endless prayers for that boy, that man. And so what would he say to her? You know. And so I felt like God said, Keith, write a letter. I'm going to give to Gary to give to your wife. And uh, seriously, I just felt like this was uh, a letter from heaven that Keith was uh, conveying to his wife. It's a phenomenal letter. Like you feel that he spoke through you. I feel like not necessarily that he spoke through me, but this is what he would say if he were to say anything. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, how do you know, <laughs> you know, whether you're getting messages from heaven or we're just wired in a way to find comfort, seek comfort, offer comfort? Right. And like the uh, letter number four, Dear Hurting, uh, that inspiration came from a conversation with uh, a lady named Darlene, whose daughter had been raped. And for whatever reason, she conveyed the story to me. And after we were talking, she says, Gary, I so wish you could talk to my daughter because the lights went out in her life. You know, she's just, uh, she was despondent, uh, internal anguish and so on. And I said, well, you know, it's a very sensitive topic. I'm a guy and we don't know each other, so it's probably not going to happen, but I'll write her a letter. And I just, I just unconsciously said, I'll write her a letter. And I thought to myself, when I got home, I thought, what in the heck would I say to a woman in this situation? I, I have no clue. And I felt like God said, Gary, take a pen. I'm going to write it for you. And uh, seriously, I felt like God just wrote this letter to her relating to her pain through his pain, signs at Jesus of Nazareth. And what did she, how did she react when she got the letter? So here's the story. So I give it to Darlene to give to her daughter, and I never heard anything. Three years go by, and I'm walking up from the lake, and I run across this woman watering her garden. And this young girl, she's 24-ish, watering her garden. And we introduced ourselves. I don't know why I introduced myself as Gary Estrada, but I did. And her mouth fell to the ground. She says, oh, my gosh, you're not the Gary Estrada that wrote that letter to my mom, Darlene. And I said, yes. She says, Gary, I'm the daughter. Oh. She said to me, Gary, that letter changed my life. I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, talk about divine appointment. I mean, I'm walking up from a lake, you know, uh, three years after the fact, wh what are the chances of me running into this woman? And, and the fact that that letter changed her life. That is... It's like, whoa, what a story. So, I mean, you, you must be a man of faith. I am. Or did this experience change you and make you into a man of faith? No, I've, I'm a, I've, I've been honed over the last, since I was 13 years old. How do you mean honed? Life has just taught me, you know, uh, about uh, the importance of, of loving people, caring for people, uh, reaching out to people and um, just chipping away at the, at the pride of life and, and allowing me to be humbled and allowing me to feel and care. And writing is something I've been doing for 20 years and, or, or longer, well, ever since college, so longer than that. 
And um, I just felt like God gave me the gift of sensitivity, the gift of being able to uh, communicate with people and share with them from deep inside. You know, I'm not a surface, how's the weather kind of guy. You know, I, I look at people. I ran into a woman one time and I sat next to her on a bench and I looked at her. This is serious. This is actually exactly what I said to her. I said, you know, you're a very beautiful woman, but when I look at you, I see so much pain. And she started to cry. She said, Gary, I have so much pain because I want my mother to love me. I thought, wow, what a what a statement. And she was crying. And I just met her. See, and that's what happens to me all the time. People open up to you. People open up to me. I don't know why they do, but they just do. I mean, why would Darlene talk to me about a very sensitive topic regarding her daughter? Um, yeah, I know. It's weird. And sometimes I, it is true. Like sometimes there just are certain people you find yourself opening up to. I mean, I'm sure it's happened to you. Where you find yourself talking to someone. Maybe saying something you hadn't planned on. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's the weirdest thing. It's like we're, you know, you're, wi- again, wired to do that. So so you wrote these letters, and that's what your book is about. Exactly. I just needed the world to, to, to these letters were so powerful, so life-changing, that I wanted to share them with the world. And... Um, what I did with these letters, and I think this is one of the reasons why they sent me a royalty contract, was because I took the letters and I created poetry. They're poetic letters. They maintain their integrity, but they have this wonderful rhythm to them. And they're just beautiful letters, just absolutely beautiful um, and very profound. Uh, I've had people cry. I mean, I've had that said to me often. So uh, they're very powerful. They're very penetrating these letters. And so I want, my job is to be able to share these letters with as many people as possible because they're life-changing. They're, 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 they reach into the soul. How many letters? Five. Five letters. But they're long letters. They're not like, you know, uh, seven sentences long. These are long letters. Every letter has, a, you know, tells a whole story. Correct. Each letter is different. Keith died of cancer. Second letter is the prodigal son. Third letter uh, is Psalms 23 as it relates to life itself. And I have an orphanage in the Ukraine. And so when I was, uh, when I was uh, writing Psalms 23, I took each verse, broke it up. There's six verses. And what does this mean in a practical way? I was thinking of my friends in the Ukraine who are huddled in a basement when bombs are going off two blocks away and, they, and it's shaking their whole building. Uh, and so I thought about them when I when I wrote Psalms 20, when I when I did a, uh, an illustration of Psalms 23, uh, of course, dear hurting, you know, it's about any abused individual. You know, I was abused. I left home at 17. So this is not just about a rape victim. This is about anybody who's gone through abuse. And uh, the fifth letter is all about conveying a thank you to a woman who died of cancer lymphoma. She was the most awesome lady I ever came across. Um, She had lymphoma. She died. But we became friends for four years. Um, And she was the most, this is a platonic relationship. She was married. She had a wonderful husband, David, 
took great care of her, but we became friends. And she taught me about love because she had so much pain and yet she was such a loving human being. So that letter is a letter to heaven. So thank you, uh, Mary Lynn, for changing my life. Thank you for loving me unconditionally. Thank you. Uh, you know, and so, so that's the fifth letter. Wow. Are, are you reading them somewhere? Everywhere I go, I was in a 7-Eleven. This lady says, God bless you. I said, God bless you too. I said, you know what? I bet you would enjoy this book. She says, Gary, I want to buy it. And she bought it. I've sold 70 books that way. No way. Just people running into people? That's correct. That's amazing. I have sold 70 books. I order 30 at a time. I'm already in my third order, and I'm down to seven. <laughs> That's amazing. So just being out and around, and you're kind of letting the uh, spirit world come to you. That's correct. That's pretty interesting. Because people get really hung up on this part. You know, they pour their heart and soul into a book, and then they're like, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, Facebook, there's social media, you can set up author talks, you can go to the library, you can go to your church, you can go to book clubs, you know, there's all of these things that you can do. And all you're doing is going about your life. And people are coming to you. Yes, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. So can you imagine I've sold that many books? I cannot imagine that. I can't. I can't. Do you belong to a church? Um, officially, no, because my church is in the Ukraine. I have an orphanage that I've been going for 10 years there, and the city is Mediupol. Of course, Mediupol is now dust. They blew the hell out of it. And uh, But that's an orphanage, and that pastor, who's a, a, male, a male version of Mother Teresa, um, he, I, I'm devoted to him and, and his cause of feeding ch street children, taking them off the streets, feeding them, clothing them. Uh, and getting them off uh, five years older in the street doing drugs. So he is my church. He, I give, I, I belong to that church. And I just don't, I, I'll go to a church where my kids go to. Uh, it's called Emmanuel. But, you know, I will never join another church. Yeah. That church, Ukraine. Someday I want to go back there, but, you know, it's, it's too dangerous. But someday I want to go back. But are you in touch with the pastor? Is he able to keep the ministry going? Yes. What he does every single day is he goes from a safe zone into the war zone. Mm. He brings water, food, he, and then he carries people out from the wow. city and he brings them to safety. He has a, uh, a death sentence on his life. If they catch him, they will kill him. Uh, but he goes in there every single day. Wow. And then I feed one family. It's part of the orphanage. The orphanage was started by this gentleman named Kennedy and a woman named Olga. And they started, the, she was the mother of this orphanage. She's now in Kiev. I send her money every two weeks. You're amazing. I hope you get to go back there. Yeah, I me too. I, I, I'm I'll... Five, five people to that family. And, and they need help. So I send them money every two weeks. Well, so now what? What's next? You're going to keep writing? I, I I will always be a writer. Okay. Yeah, I want to be able to um, uh, write ten books. I want to be able to write them uh, four books, have them available, and then I want to open a kiosk. 
in one little place and then open and, and figure out how to make it work. And primarily on weekends, sell books. And then if I can make it work, if I can hone it to its productive, then I can do another one and another one and another one. Um, and then I want to do speaking engagements just to just to you know, just different functions, uh, set up a, a kiosk at a, a woman's retreat or whatever, just stuff like that. Uh, there's a thousand of them. There's 10,000 of them. Right. And sign up for those things. Market my book. Well, Gary, man, you hang in there. You're doing good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, I tell you, I, you probably come across a thousand different people. But I'm going to tell you, honestly, if you were to get this book, you'll, 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 you can feel, uh, you can feel the letters. You can actually feel the letters. I believe that. God bless you. God bless you. You have a great day. Donna Prue has come a long way. She had brain surgery about 10 years ago and has since become a wedding planner, writer, and now a published author with her book, Prue's Poems and Advice. So Donna, a high school project is what got you started, right? Uh, yeah, actually I did. Uh, there was a class there and my teacher had given me these cards, like cue cards. They had like different things on them and you were to make a story out of them and all I came up with at that time was the ghost in a saloon but all the other stuff for this book actually um was just at the time I was keeping a book of things that I wanted to get out of my head at the time, I had a lot of things that would come to my mind and I would just write it down and something else came to my head. I just wrote it down and wrote it in the book. And later on, I looked at it and end up uh, putting it together. So you call it poems and advice. Yes. How did you put those two things together? Do you have a poem and then some advice? Yes. Um, it'd be a little short uh, poem and then a piece of advice came out later after the uh, poem and just came and ended up into like 300 different um, poems and advice and when I was printing them all off I put them in an envelope and said you know what why don't I send this out and see if this can get into a book okay now your book also comes with a warning that it's not to be used for spell casting for magic spells. Like, who would do that? Why would somebody do that? Oh, just any idiot out there. I was just covering my basis, um, you know, for in the future. Um, there's weirdos out there that um, say, oh, yeah, the book made me do it or the movie made me do it. I wanted to slam that in their face before they decided to use that excuse. Would your book inspire somebody to do something harmful? Um, I would hope the hell not, but you... I would hope not either. <laughs> I mean, that could happen to anybody, right? Right. I mean, there's a lot of weirdos out there. You never know what they have on their mind. That is true. All right. So can you give me an example of one of your poems followed by advice? Uh, let's see. This one is a glance. A glance is... A glance is about a brief impression, shyness, or... 
flashing eye contact or just giving the right impressions. The feeling of a glance isn't what you want. You want to be getting. You want to have it stay and not just come for brief moments. This is when you say, glance, glance, come and stay. Do not leave and be brief. I need you here to stay. Do not go, do not go. Every time you need this feeling, say this and it will stay with you. This way you will start feeling better. This is just good advice. Is that the poem? That one I kind of combined it both at the same time. So what are you talking about? What inspired that? I was thinking about dating at the time, and I was trying to um, get my thoughts together of a good man and how to find one. It sounds like you wanted somebody to glance at you. Yeah. To recognize you, to see you. Uh, yes. At the time, um, I was in my own world, kind of, you know, doing my own thing. So what is your advice? Um, maybe be more open. Okay. And maybe you'll get noticed a little more. Okay. So are the poems all on a similar theme, or do you cover... You, you said there's over 300 poems? Yeah. 300? That's a lot of poems. Uh, yeah, uh, different ones and different things. So uh, let's see. Are all of these poems from the same time of your life? Sort of, I guess. Uh, just a lot of stuff kind of combined it into one shot, and I was kind of just trying to get it all out of my head at the time and you know uh trying to sort things out and so i just kind of put it all in a book and just kind of uh sorted it out and kind of made a book out of it it was sort of after my surgery i had brain surgery uh for a lesion on my head oh my gosh donna yeah it was from getting hit by a car uh, when I was a kid at four, and I ended up having seizures. Your whole life? Yeah. How long, how many years before you had surgery? I had it in 2012 or 13. Okay. So when did you write the book? I started then just writing it down. After your surgery? Oh, yeah. I just sent it out in 2020 or 22. 21. When did you, you started writing it after you had your surgery? Yeah. Okay. And you were kind of remembering other things in your life. Right. Okay. So do you have another favorite poem you'd like to share with us? Uh, let's see. I'll try this one. A water, waterfall dream. Waterfall is a beautiful thing and a waterfall can be a very powerful thing. If you are looking to have a way to become calm, cool, and collective, this is the way to do it by watching and staring at all the sprays and foams and listen to all the wars of the rapid flows from 
an extremely big pool of water, you start to get hypnotized and fall asleep and wonder why you are here where you are at. And you look around and realize the reason you can't remember is because you just woke up from a beautiful waterfall dream. These are the dreams you always want to have. So whenever you need them, you will be there for you. Just call upon the waterfall dream. Waterfall dream, come back again. Waterfall dream, come back again. I need you tonight and more than ever. Please come back to me tonight. And when you say this, you will start to have much better and more beautiful dreams for the rest of your life. So is your advice in the poem kind of part of the poem? It's uh, kind of both again, obviously. Right. You've got some interesting stuff going on there. Nothing about witches in there or anything, right? No, not particularly. Are you going to keep writing? Uh, yeah, it's supposed to, um, supposed to come out with a second um, section to this uh, book. And then I'm going to have uh, two more books that are similar to this, um, except it's going to be called Stories and Advice 1 and 2 as well. So the four of them into a um, book box uh, I was thinking to have. And you'd have the poems and advice and the stories and advice in one, in one box. Oh, like a group of books. Yeah, I was kind of um, going for that effect in the future. Well, listen, good luck with that. Just keep writing. Does it make you feel better when you're writing? Does it give you comfort? Yeah, and it also, um, by writing the books, it also sometimes gets some things off my chest uh, as well. I just put it into the book, and it gets out of my head or off my chest, and say it just kind of goes to where it's going. Yeah. Much better, right? Yeah. Than feeling upset. And Yeah. <laughs> all right i can relate to that well donna thank you so much i'm glad i tracked you down oh yes and thank you roger Akerley was a carpenter for many years but for 20 years he had a local tv show where he talked about the scriptures every week and that inspired his book of the same name the sea of glass i tried to understand the scriptures through the understanding of the sabbath most people don't understand that. They think the Sabbath is the day of the week, but it's not the day of the week. Everything that you learn in this world, you have to repeat it six times inside of you. And on the seven days, you got the answer. This is what, this is what I believe, you know. And the Sabbath was never really understood in this world because nobody understands the scriptures, so they don't understand what it's all about. And this is what I wrote the book by. Everything that's in that book was processed through the understanding of, you know, the the Sabbath. And understand how to understand the scriptures is to understand that everything has a translation into a spiritual value. So I wrote this book as a spiritual power inside of myself 
to understand the scriptures. And I think that, you know, uh, it's the first book that was ever written in spiritual understanding. And that's why I really cherish this book with all my heart. And I, I want people to see what they can do to understand the scriptures. Okay, Ro Roger, <laughs> let me ask you this. So how is it that you are able to understand the scriptures unlike anyone else? I, I want to tell you, I use the understanding. <laughs> to me, I think God speaks to you, to okay. each one of us. And God speaks to us, says that people don't hear him. But once you understand with the Sabbath, the laws of Sabbath, the laws of the commandment, you know, and you have to understand that everything you want to know about the scriptures is just what I told you there. Read it six times, seven times, you'll have the answer. That's the way I got all the answer. And I understand. And then everything has to do with the three or few city there. You got to understand the three or few city. And most, you can talk to any preacher around and ask him what the refuge city is. They can't explain it to you, but I can explain it to you. The refuge city, the first city is the truth. And you have to return to the truth to understand the scriptures. And then the second city is common sense. You have to return to common sense to understand the scriptures. And then the third city is reality. Everything has to match reality in the truth for all things to be. You know, that's that's what I made myself to understand. The greatest power to understand is to feel through these scriptures and the understanding of it. You know, you really have to pray to the Lord. You know, most people don't understand the Lord, and they don't believe in God. They believe in Jesus. They believe in some kind of a, a God somewhere, but they don't believe in the God. The the God is the truth. And if you pray to the truth, you understand everything that you want to understand. And that's why I wrote the book, you know, on the basis of human understanding that comes in the feelings of life. And you begin to understand everything from the truth because everything was created by the truth. And that's why the truth is God. And that's why the truth is also common sense because everything was treated was created by common sense. And everything was treated from reality to common sense in the truth. And that's what the understanding of the scriptures is. It's able to understand that the great power of the truth is to really understand your feeling inside of yourself. And that's what I do. I understand every feeling that's inside of me. Now, organized religion don't have any clue of what God is. God is the truth. And you have to pray to the truth to get to the Lord your God. Does that make sense to you? Um, it does. It does. There's a lot of people out there. This is what... This is what it can be confusing because there's a lot of people out there that say they understand the scriptures. God speaks to them. I've had people say to me, God told me to write this book. I understand better than anyone. I've had people tell me I've never studied theology. I've never, you know, I just listen to the Lord and the Lord speaks to me. So there's a lot of uh, information out there and it's hard. Yeah, but... it's hard to figure out, you know, 
one from the other. So um, can you give me an example of what I'll find in your okay. book? I mean, just just, okay. just let me finish. So you say a clear understanding of the scriptures in spiritual terms, and you say self-control, self-learning, self-understanding. Can you just give me one example of what you mean by that? There's only one God. One God and one God only. And if you believe in all the God of the Christian world, you don't believe in God. You know, you have to understand that you have to return to the truth to understand God. You cannot understand the truth without returning to it. And the same thing with common sense. When you read something or you write something, you write it with total common sense. And it makes sense. And you can read my book all over. It's all made out of common sense that I put inside myself. Now, there's many interpretation of the Bible. I agree with you there, but there's only one God and one truth, you know? Uh, so that's the, un that's the understanding. There's only one truth, and the truth is at the center of all intelligence, you know? Now, you said you had this TV show, The Sea of Glass. Do you still have it? Well, we're going back to it this week. There's a pandemic. They shut it down. But I'm going back the 30th. And we're going to have, I'm going to read from my book instead of reading from the Bible. They used to read from the Bible there. But now I'm going to read from my book, my explanation of the understanding of everything. You see, for some reason, the Lord sent the pandemic on us so we can come to understand and take the break from this. And so I had to write the book, you know. And right, right now I'm writing another book about the, the laws of God. And all the laws of God are so simple when you come to think of it. But you have to think of it in order to understand it. It's, it's the greatest part of a human being to be able to understand. And this is what it's all about. The understanding, self-understanding, self-control, and then, unless you have self-understanding and self-learning, you lose self-control. And this is where the world is right now. You know, self-control. Everybody wants to, you know, be a billionaire and everybody wants to be this and that, you know, because the world's out of control. You know, you got to understand that this world has to be controlled by intelligence. And until we do understand it by intelligence, we don't understand it, you know. Uh, I tell you, I'm 76 years old, I work all my life as a hard labor man, and I think that it was meant for me to write this book. And I wrote the book in the understanding for all mankind. You know, I didn't write it for myself because I understand it. I write it so people can read the book and understand that there's another world above you that has never been touched by humanity. The world of human understanding that we have inside of our soul and nobody's never paid attention to it. Me, I pay attention to it and it's there and it comes from God. Do you give and, examples in your book? Do you give examples I of what you're talking of, about? Of what you're talking So self-control, let's just start right there. Just, just give me an example of what you mean by self-control, learning self-control. If you don't learn for yourself and you don't learn to think for yourself, then you lose self-control. You know, if you 
think that you can control yourself. No, it won't work. You got to learn in order to control yourself. How do I learn and, that? Do you tell me in your book how I learn self-control, the steps I have to take? Do you tell me how to do that? How to learn self-control is try to understand inside of yourself what makes sense above yourself. You know, if if you don't understand what makes sense above yourself, let's say a person wants to kill another person, that person has lost his control because he hasn't got the understanding inside of himself. Most people don't learn nothing in their life. And that's why you have so many criminals. You have so many this and so much of that because they do not understand how to handle themselves in learning. You're born into this world to learn and you're going to learn every day of your life until you, you know, and that's how you become self-control you can control yourself with the ideas that you have understood in the but if you don't learn nothing you you gotta you gotta fall apart and you're gonna kill people and you're gonna rape people and you're gonna do all kinds of things and you you can steal from people because you don't have the control to control the reality of what is true you know so um, I guess so. I guess you'll be talking about your book on your show. So that's good. That, that that's yeah. a good place. I'm sure your viewers will be interested in, yeah. in hearing what you have to say. Now, now you wrote this book during the pandemic. Yes. Yeah. I, I, wrote, I wrote this book because uh, we stopped my show and I couldn't do the show no more. Mm -hmm. So so I start we start writing the book and I wanted to write this book all my life. I'm 76 years old now. I said, if I don't write it now, I won't write it. Right. You know, you know. So I come to understand the great power of learning. There's nothing greater in life than learning. And if you stop learning at any age, you're just going to do all kinds of crazy stuff sure. because and and you look at the world out there that's why these people they think they know enough and they lose it because they don't learn anymore you see your spirit is made to extend you know i only got my fifth grade in school in a french school in canada you know and i never stopped learning in my life you know I learned, yeah, I learned, I can tell you everything about politics, I can tell you anything, but the thing is, is to understand, once you have that self-understanding, it never goes away, it's always there for you to right. cherish them. All right, Roger, you are, you are certainly devoted to your beliefs, for yes, sure, and, yeah. and um, I guess you'll be writing some more, I have a feeling. Will you be writing yeah. more books? Well, I'm writing right now. I got almost the, the laws of book. Uh, the oh, that's right. You're going to write another book. That's right. I'm writing. I'm writing the laws of God right now. Okay. You know, it, most people don't understand the laws because they think with their mind, not with their feelings. When I say, okay, let's say you say a, a man should not sleep with his mother. Okay. What is that? What does that mean to you? You know, to me, it means that you're not supposed to sleep with the religion of the past. Your mother is the past. Understand what I mean? So you got to look at yourself and try to understand and get the answer from that. It's not the idea of, of sex. It's not a sexual thing. It's the sexual understanding of spiritual value. Uh -huh. And once you, once you come to understand that, 
you know, you understand the greatest power of all, yourself. You know, you see, it's not, it, there's no sense of, of the physical part of us. The scent is all in the spirit. Everything that the spirit does, it controls you into what is right and controls you what is wrong. And if you don't listen to that, then you do all kinds of things wrong yep. because because you don't have the power to understand the power of the scriptures themselves. Mm-hmm. It's, to be able, it's to be able to understand that in the world we have a learner and that's inside of ourselves. It's like it's like a machine that tells you what makes sense inside of you. Mm-hmm. And that and that machine tells you what's wrong and what's right. But if you never think about what's wrong, what's right, then you come to a situation, you're dead and you're going to do wrong because you cannot understand. Right. You know, yeah. and you, you got to understand that the scripture is written. Let me give you an example. You know, I mean, Adam and Eve had, had two sons, right? Yeah. They had Cain and Abel. Now, what does that mean to you? I mean, they had two sons, but it's not, that's a physical part, not the spiritual part. You know, uh, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve is the, the spirit and the mind is Eve. It, it's not, it's not a main, of the, of the, it's a spiritual value that mm-hmm. God has created inside of a human being. He has created the power of spirit and mind. And that gave birth to two sons, right and wrong. So you have Cain and Abel. And so Cain killed Abel. So in other words, we've been wrong for all these 6,000 years because because we cannot. It was killed in front of us. And everything that people do is wrong because they don't understand what is right, right, you know. So just like Cain did not understand his brother at all, right. you know. Well, Roger, thank you so much. I wish you the best of luck with your book and, and good luck with your TV show. Yes. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.